If you would open your Bibles with me to Ephesians 4, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And the title of this sermon is When in Rome. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, when in Rome? It means when you're in Rome, you should do as the Romans do. When you're with one type of people, act like them. When you're with another type of people, act like them. And in certain international situations, this is okay and even polite, even correctly contextual, like Paul being all things to all men in 1 Corinthians 9. But when it comes to our worldview and our way of life, we'll find out today that the Bible teaches the exact opposite of acting like the world around us. In fact, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays that we would be in the world, but not of the world. He calls his followers, us, to be salt and light. We are to be distinct in this world and intentionally different from those around us. This is when we're at our best and most effective for the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what we'll see Paul teaching in our text today. That there's a sharp contrast between what we once were and what we now are. So let's dive into the text. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Our two sections for today's text are these. Point one, old, in verses 17 through 19, and point two, New in verses 20 through 24. So point one, old. Now I want us to see how Paul leads into this section. Uh, Look with me at verse 17. He starts and he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Uh, This word translated testify can also be translated insist or implore or even charge. And in this context... That seems to be the thrust. But look at the next three words. I I say and insist in the Lord. Paul is about to command obedience in some specific areas. In fact, next week he'll spell out six specific ways that we're actually called to live the Christian life. He He wants his readers and us to understand that this isn't just Paul commanding these things the Lord Jesus. This isn't just Paul's opinion 
or, or his perspective on things. He's insisting or charging us in the Lord. He's proclaiming the word of God. And he's rooting his authority in the Lord Jesus. So, what does he charge or implore them and us with? Verse 17 again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Once again, walk, as we've seen so many times throughout the book of Ephesians, means your way of life. How you live, both internally and externally, your thought life, and your actions. And he's using Gentiles here to refer to pagans, or the world. In other words, he's saying, I and Jesus insist that you don't live like pagans, like your old way of life, like the culture around you in Ephesus. Remember that Paul's writing to Gentile converts here, and he's telling them, Not to live like they used to, like those around them. He's calling them to be distinct, just like Jesus had. So, is he calling them to wear Christian t-shirts, or to forego electricity and technology altogether, or what? What does it mean for them not to live like the world? How does the world walk? Well, Paul gives three specific answers. They walk with darkened understanding, alienated from the life of God, and calloused. Let's walk through these in the text, starting again in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Futility of their minds, darkened in understanding. Isn't that interesting? We might assume that Paul would start with sinful behavior of some sort, right? Some action that pagan people do. But instead, he begins with how they think. James Boyce comments here that we are sometimes given the impression that what a person thinks is not important so long as he acts properly. Or again, that a person can mess up on a practical level and still have his life together intellectually. That is not the way things actually are, according to the apostle. People act as they think, and the reason they are constantly messing up is that they are vain in their thinking and darkened in their understanding as a consequence of being separated from God. In other words, our problems go back to the mind. Futility. It's a word that means emptiness, vanity, even purposelessness. Darkened in their understanding. Think blacked out. This is the mind of the world. And to be clear, we're we're talking about spiritual understanding here. Not normal mental faculty. Spiritual understanding. They they can't discern spiritual reality. Their spiritual thinking is empty. Second, a, a pagan way of life is a life alienated from the life of God. So it's not only a life that's darkened, it's dead, according to Paul. Separated from the life of God. 
Now, why is this? Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Do you see that? They're dead to God because they don't know him. And they don't know him because their hearts are hardened. And I want to be really clear here. The world has willfully done this. Romans 1 makes this abundantly clear. God has, in fact, revealed himself to all of humanity in two ways. Through nature and through his word, the scriptures. General revelation and specific revelation. He's revealed himself to us. But people have rejected him nonetheless. Romans 1.18 says that they, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And because of this, God's wrath is upon them. Further, God gives them over to where their hearts naturally go. Look at this. Romans 1, verses 21 through 26. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. St. Augustine once said that the punishment of sin is sin. The punishment of sin is sin. The world rejects the life of God, and he gives them over to what they want, which results in harder and harder and harder hearts. The walk of the world is darkened and dead, but it's also callous. Look at verse 19. They have become callous and having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The verb translated have become callous means to lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. I'm going to read that again. To lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. And again, I would point us to the phrase, given themselves up to. This is of their own initiative. But what Paul's getting at here is that this callousness leads to more and more and more and more depravity. The more callous they become, the more they need to satiate their appetites. Think about this. If your eyes are open even a little bit, you see this in our society, don't you? The capacity to feel shame or embarrassment is growing smaller and smaller and smaller. There's almost nothing that's considered out of bounds morally in our world. Darkened, dead, callous. Paul says, you, Christian." must no longer walk in this way. Don't think and live like the culture around you. So, 
On one side, no, we're not being told to wear Christian t-shirts or, or to forego electricity. In many ways, we're like the world, aren't we? We work jobs, we have hobbies, we live like normal people. But Paul is calling us to live distinct lives and peculiar lives among the world. For years in the church, we've been sold a bill of goods that we need to be relevant and culturally savvy if we want to make a gospel impact in the world. No. We're actually called to think and be quite different from the world as Christians. Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So, if, if we're being told in the negative or prohibitive sense to not walk in a certain way, that only brings us to a standstill. What does it look like for us to, to actually move forward and as verse 1 said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, next week in verses 25 through 32, Paul's going to give us six concrete commands. But before he does that, he wants to remind us of some foundational truths about our Christianity. If, if verses 17 through 19 were about the old, verses 20 through 24 about point two, new. The old way of walking was darkened, dead, and callous. But here, Paul will show us that we have a new school, new clothes, and a new creation. And here's what Paul's ultimately driving at. Identity dictates action. Identity dictates action. If you have a new identity, you act differently. Think about it. If you're at work and one of your peers gets a promotion to be your boss, they have a new identity. And you would expect that they would act differently. They have to. They're a boss now. There's a new level of responsibility and expectations. Here's the truth. You, as a Christian, have been made new. You have a new identity, new school, new clothes, and you're a new creation. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Paul says, but that, so he's transferring out of the old, darkened, dead, and callous, and he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. This is great. As Christians, we have a new school. Remember the quote earlier about our problems going back to the mind? Well, maybe that's why Paul starts here. And there's three aspects I want us to see about this new school that we have. Number one, Christ is the subject of this school. Do you see that? Paul says, you learned Christ. You learned Christ. Think about it. If you're in school and the subject is math, that's how you talk. You learned math. Same concept here. Paul says, you learned Christ. But unlike math or science, 
This learning is relational. How do you learn a person? How do you learn a person? While not completely devoid of simple facts, it's much more than that, isn't it? In college, when I was interested in Shannon and wanting to learn Shannon, yes, you start with facts. I had to learn her name, where she grew up, what she likes to do. But to have a true relationship with her, it involved truly getting to know her. It's what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 3. It says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one or the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God, to learn Christ. This is the essence of what Paul's saying here. In this new school, Christ is the subject. Our goal is to know him relationally as a person. But it's more than that. Christ is the subject, but he's also the teacher. Point two, Christ is the teacher of the school. Look at at these verses again. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. In the Greek, the word about actually isn't there. It simply says, assuming that you have heard him. This assumes that Christ is alive and that he was speaking to them. They heard him. So let's ask the question. How had they heard Christ speak? Paul is saying to the Ephesians and to us this morning that we have heard the voice of Christ through the apostolic teaching, in their case, via Paul, and in our case, via the scriptures. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have Jesus as a teacher? Well, Paul's saying that each time you hear the gospel preached, that's exactly what you're getting. You've heard Christ. Christ is the subject of the school and the teacher of the school. But there's more. Point three Christ is the context of the school. Look again, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Normally we would read that we were taught by him or about him, but that's not what it says. It says taught in him, and the truth is in Jesus. We've said this from the beginning. In language is union language. We're unified with or in Christ. Jesus is the atmosphere of which the teaching in the school takes place. So how do you come to know or to learn Jesus? Through relationship with him. In union with him. He's the school itself. So... As Christians, we have a new school where Christ is the subject, the teacher, and the atmosphere of learning a new way to walk. Second, we have new clothes. Look at our text again, starting back in in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him 
as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. You see the language here of put off and put on. It's language typically used when referring to garments of clothing. Put off, put on. He says the old manner of life, that, that, that old walk, the way the world walks, described in verses 17 through 19, all of that, take it off, put it aside. How? Well, by being renewed in the spirit of your minds. Again, do you see how actions follow the mind and the heart? This is why Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, famous text, Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Look at this, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we renew our minds? Well, in one sense, we don't. In our text in Ephesians, look at this. The verb to be renewed is in the passive voice, meaning that it's God who's doing the work. He's the one who renews our minds. It's his sovereign grace renewing us from the inside out. The Apostle John calls this regeneration or new birth. Paul often uses the language of a resurrection, being raised from the dead. Both of these are something that you can't do yourself. They're sovereign acts of God upon you. But... There certainly is an active part of renewing your mind as well. R.C. Sproul, who used to have a podcast called Renewing Your Mind, he had this to say. He says, It is possible to have knowledge without having wisdom. It is not possible, however, to have wisdom without knowledge. Knowledge is a necessary precondition for wisdom. The practice of godliness demands that we know and understand what godliness requires. The Christian life is a transformed life. The transformation of life comes about, as the Apostle Paul declares, through the renewal of the mind. An understanding of the word of God renews the mind. The word of God expresses the mind of God to us. I love that. As Christians, we're to put off our old way of life and to put on the new through renewing our minds. Now understand this. In one sense, this is something that happened to us the moment we repented and believed in Christ for salvation. We are declared righteous. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But in another sense, it's a constant battle, isn't it? Martin Luther once said that Christians are simul justice et peccator simultaneously justified or made right and sinful. That's right. At the moment of our conversion, the old man, 
was crucified, killed, buried, dead. We're raised with Christ as a new man. Yet, we still struggle with sin and the old man, don't we? Here's a helpful historical theology lesson from Augustine's Doctrine of the Bondage of the Will. And this gets complex, so tune in. Augustine, using the scriptures, taught that there are four states of man in relation to sin. Four states of man in relation to sin. Number one, able to sin, able not to sin. Able to sin, able not to sin. So this was Adam and Eve before the fall, right? They were able to sin, they were able not to sin. Second, the second state would be not able not to sin. Not able not to sin. This is the state of natural man after the fall. We've all inherited Adam's sin. We're born into it. We can't not sin after the fall. Third, able not to sin. This is the state of regenerate man of those who are born again, of those who are Christians. We're able not to sin. And then fourth, unable to sin. This is the state of the glorified man. Once we've died and gone to heaven, unable to sin, sin is no more. So, here's what I want us to clearly understand. As regenerate people, as born-again believers... We are able not to sin because we've been rescued out of slavery and renewed by the Holy Spirit. We're able to put off the old man. We're able to walk in newness of life. We have that freedom in Christ. This doesn't mean that we always exercise that freedom, though. In fact, Uh, Unfortunately, we often put back on our old prison clothes. That's Paul's point here. You, me, Christian, we're not the old man anymore. Stop walking like a pagan. Put on the new clothes of Christ. You've been declared righteous. You're robed in Christ's righteousness. Now, live righteously as a result of the grace that you've been given. That's what he's saying. As Christians, we're given a new school. and We're given new clothes. And there's one more truth. A Christian is a new creation. A Christian is a new creation. Look once more at verse 24. He says, and to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This likeness language, it's garden language, right? Well, what does Genesis 1, 26 and 27 say? It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see what Paul's doing in Ephesians 4? He's using creation language. 
He's using an image of God language to describe what Christ has done in the believer. The new man is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's a new creation. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are created in the image of God. But because of sin, that image is mutilated and marred. But in Christ, it's restored and recreated. This is the good news of the gospel. Because of what Christ has done, we're made new. The moment we turn from sin and trust in Christ... We're a new creation in true righteousness and a holiness, Paul says. That's the truth. The response to that truth is our obedience to Christ's commands. And next week, Paul will have some clear commands for us. Six of them. At the end of the day, here's the main thrust of this text. Don't live like the world around you, Christian. You've been given the greatest, most gracious gift in the entire world. A new school, new clothes, and you've been made a new creation. Live like who you are. Let's pray.